The Lord set before me two baskets of figs by the temple when Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had taken captive Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, and all his princes, and all the craftsmen, and all the smiths, and all the children taken captive up to Babylon. And those two baskets of figs, one was good, and one was bad, very bad. And the word of the Lord came to me and said, What do you see, Jeremiah? Two baskets of figs. One good, prepared, ready to be eaten. The other bad. Very bad. They cannot be eaten. Like the good figs, I will acknowledge those who have been taken away. In fact, I've allowed them to be captured for their own good. And my eyes are upon them for their good. And I will return them to the land. And they shall be lifted up and not brought down. They shall be planted in the land and not plucked out. And I will give them a new heart. And I will be their God. And they will be my people. For I am the Lord and they will return to me with a whole heart. As for the bad figs, the figs that cannot be eaten, I will give over Zedekiah, the king of Judah, and all his princesses, and all his administration, and all the residue of Jerusalem, and all those who dwell in Egypt, and I will deliver them to trouble to reproach, to harm, even to the curse. And I will drive them out with the sword, with famine, and even with pestilence. And my people shall be consumed from the land that I gave to their fathers and to their forefathers. That's a conversation between God and Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 24. What does that conversation have to do with the triumphal entry in Mark chapter 11? You think Jesus and Mark have written Mark 11 in such a way that immediately the reader familiar with the parable of the two baskets of figs in Jeremiah 24 would immediately see the parallel. Now, we may not immediately see the parallel. Hopefully, by the end of today, you'll say, oh, my goodness, God and Mark and Jesus are genius in fitting the Old and New Testament together. Let me show you a few of the highlights from that Jeremiah passage because they're going to be important. A little history. When God was speaking to Jeremiah, he said, number one, the temple is about to be destroyed. Number two, I'm going to allow a foreign entity to come in and crush 
the temple and crush my people. But I am going to save a remnant that I will return to the land and I will give them a new heart to come and return to the land that I've given to you. Here's what he says here in that passage in Jeremiah 24. The Lord showed me that there were two baskets of figs set before the temple of the Lord. After Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, carried away captive Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah. One basket had very good figs, like the figs that are first ripe. In my case, they're fig newtons. Uh, And the other basket had very bad figs, which could not be eaten because they're so bad. Like the good figs, so I will acknowledge those who are carried away captive from Judah. I will set my eyes upon them for good. I will bring them back to the land. I will build them and not pluck them up. I will plant them, not pluck them up. Then I will give them a heart. A heart to know me and to return to me with a whole heart. That God is going to use this process in Israel's life, in Jeremiah's time and again in Jesus' time, to ultimately accomplish his main goal, which is develop a whole heart for God from you and I. And I want to propose to you that Jesus is doing the same thing. As we, we walk through this passage together, Jesus wants to give us a new heart, and that heart will be built out of figs and branches. And the question is, what kind of figs and what kind of branches? We're going to look at two baskets of figs. And then we're going to look at the bad figs and what they produce. Then we're going to look at the good figs and what they produce. And we're going to find out there might be a third way in between the two. My hope is that God will give you and I a new heart for him this morning. That we would be able to examine which basket we're in. And that we would be, uh, begin to ask ourselves, am I submitting to God's agenda in my life? Or am I asking him to submit to mine? Open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 11 verse 1. The passage begins like this. Now, when they came near Jerusalem to Bethsuage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Now, if you're a typical American reader like I am, you go, okay, great, some cities, let's get on with it. But he could have said Jesus knew he was near Jerusalem, that would have been fine. He could have said he was near the Mount of Olives, that would have been fine. Why does he specifically put in these pieces? Why does he give us these particular town names, Bethsuage and Bethany? Well, my wife's name is Beth, so I know Beth means house. So what is the house of Swage and what is the house of any? Well, if you look it up in Hebrew or in a commentary, in a Bible dictionary, you're not going to believe it. Bethsuage means the house of unripe figs. And Bethany means the house of figs. And Jesus says, on my way to Jerusalem to be a sacrifice, I am going to go right next to a house of unripe figs and a house of figs. And I'm going to show a way between the two that I come into this world to deliver bad figs from their rebellion, but I also come to deliver good figs from their self-righteousness. They look good on the outside, but on the inside, they are not producing the kind of fruit. And that is why the gospel tells us that we need to be rescued from our good works that we justify ourselves with and our bad works where we don't submit to God. And Jesus will thread the needle between these two towns and to the Mount of Olives where he will offer an olive branch to you and I and how we can make peace with God. Stop justifying ourselves with our good deeds and stop rebelling against him with our bad deeds. See, we're all broken. So two baskets. Immediately the scene begins. Two different baskets of figs, and the reader would immediately say, oh, wow, Jeremiah 24. 
Now let's start with the bad figs. So he sent his two disciples, and he said to them, Go into the village opposite you. We're here in Bethany. You'll find out in a moment. He mentions it three times. I want you to go over to the bad fig part of town. The village opposite. And as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied. Now Jesus has got so many little winks and elbow-elbow going on here. To the, uh, to the one who knows the Old Testament predictions of the Messiah, Jesus is smiling as he's putting this together as if, do you see what I'm doing? You see what I'm doing? I want you to go to the bad fig part of town, the place that God cursed. And there I want you to find, and he he may have said it this way, as he was hinting. I want you to find a cult for me to ride. A one in which no one has ever sat. Oh, you're going to have to loose it because it's going to be bound, that cult, that donkey will, and bring it. And if anyone has says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. Why does the Lord need anything? What's the Lord doing with a donkey? Why does he need a donkey? Why does he need a a bound donkey? Why does he need one that no one's ever sat on before? Why is this so important? But the disciples go. And immediately, he will send it here. They went their way. They found the colt, tied, bound by the door outside the street, and they had to loose it. But some of those who stood there said to them, Why are you doing this? What are you doing listening to the cult? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded, and they let them go. So here's Jesus who says, I'm a different kind of king. I'm a different kind of Messiah. I've got a different kind of message than you might think or that you might expect. But this is the very thing that God promised in the Old Testament. I'd be a different kind of Messiah than what you expect. I'm the kind of Messiah that goes to the bad figs to get my donkey. I'm the kind of one that goes to the place of the curse because I'm going to take the curse for you. I come two bad figs and four bad figs. More than that, I come to take the curse, the harm, the reproach that comes upon the bad figs that Jeremiah talked about. Let me show you the passage and then we'll show you a few more. Number one, just came to take the Jeremiah 24 curse. God said, I will deliver them to trouble and to all the kingdoms of the earth for their harm. This is what we deserve, harm, for reproach for what we've done. The byword, a taunt and a curse. In all the places I will drive them. But Jesus says, I'm going to go to the place and take your curse and take your harm and take your reproach. It will be poured upon me. And what kind of king will I be? Why does the Lord need a donkey? Because of Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice, O Israel! Rejoice greatly! Behold, your king is coming! But he's not riding on a stallion like the military leaders of the day who would ride in a stallion and look down upon the little people that he had conquered because the king would sacrifice his servants for the sake of the king. No, this king is down at our level. He's humble. He is lowly. And this king will sacrifice himself for the sake of his servants. And this donkey that he rides on is a sign of humility. He will be riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And if you want to dig more into this, amazing the level of symbolism here. In Leviticus chapter 11, verse 26, we're told that donkeys were unclean animals. So he's walking into Jerusalem on an unclean animal. Again, showing I've come for the unclean ones who need to be cleaned. 
in Exodus chapter 13, verse 13, it says that a, a donkey, a colt, needed to be redeemed or made clean by someone else. Jesus is walking it. Why did it need to be a donkey that no one has ever ridden before? Because in 1 Samuel it says that if you're going to pull the ark, you need to find an animal that's never been used for another purpose. And here is Jesus just embedding verse after verse after verse after verse. And by the way, he's threading at the Mount of Olives, the very place in Zechariah 4 it says that Jesus would establish, the Messiah would establish his earthly reign. The layers upon Jesus' symbolism here is amazing. But why did the, why did the uh, donkey need to be bound? Why did they have to loose it? Why was that so important? If you were with us uh, last year during our Code of Many Colors series, you remember my friend Carl Sutter did the blessings of Jacob upon his sons. One of the blessings upon Judah, or prayers really, or predictors really, is that out of Judah shall come a scepter, the Messiah, the king. Look what it says. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, binding his donkey to the vine. It would be bound, and you would have to loose it. And the donkey's colt to the choice vine. And here again, Jesus is embedding all these different symbols to say, I'm the Messiah, I'm the sent one, but I may not look like what you're expecting. Because out of the bad figs, I brought a donkey to show you I'm a different kind of leader. Well, then we switch over to the good figs. Now we find ourselves in Bethany. And we again find something we don't expect. Everything gets reframed here. The good figs seemingly produce good fruit. So they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. Possibly because, according to Leviticus, if you touch an unclean animal, you are unclean. So maybe he had to sit on the, on the clothes so he didn't touch it and become unclean. And they spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees, spread them down on the road... And those who went before those and cried out saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he looked around at all things, the hour was very late. And he went out to the house of figs with the twelve. At first glance, if you've been to Good Friday services or heard of the triumphal entry before, you're saying, this is good figs coming out of a good fig town. This is good fruit. I mean, it's a worship service for crying out loud. They're singing, Hosanna, Hosanna. Of course this is good figs coming from a good fig town. But I'm calling the series Reframe because we're about to reframe it all. I might ruin Good Friday for you. But it's, it's six months from now. You'll forget about the sermon by then. Before I build a case from the text, let me propose to you that maybe they aren't accepting God as Messiah and as his agenda. Because the same crowd that says, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed are you, come in the name of the Lord. It's the same crowd that just a few days later will say, crucify him. Well, sure, the Sadducees were stirring him up, but how do you get from Hosanna to crucify him? Unless there's something else going on here in the text. Unless this isn't maybe a genuine acceptance of God and his agenda and his story and his plan. Let me take you back to 160 B.C. The man's name is Judas Maccabees, otherwise known as the Hammer. The Greek kingdom under Alexander the Great had been split, and the Seleucids have taken over Jerusalem. 
and they are a horrific, terrible oppressor. They have taken over Jerusalem. They have taken over the temple. And they are making life horrible for those still living, the Jews still living in Jerusalem. But Judas the hammer decides, that's it. We're going to take on the political powers. We're going to take on the Seleucids. We're going to drive them out. I'm going to come as a military leader. And he does, because earlier the Seleucids had gone into God's temple, into the sacred place. And on his altar they had sacrificed a pig, an unclean animal, making the very temple of God an abomination of desolation. And this so angers the people that they are being held back by the political powers of the Seleucids that when Judas the Hammer comes in, he drives them out, he casts them out, he cleans the place, and he gets political liberty for them. And they're like, wow, we love the Hammer! And why wouldn't they? God loves liberty. Wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. And so as he comes back in town, grandparents and children and and, and Crowds gather and they begin to lay out palm branches and put the palm branches before Judas the Hammer Maccabees who has stopped the political oppression of the evil Seleucids. And the symbol of the palm branch becomes so critical to that moment in time of seeing the Messiah as a military leader that they make coinage into it. Here's a couple coins from that time. Judas the Hammer Maccabees stamped palm branch coins You can see here's a whole tree here. There's just one of the branches here. And it was a symbol of the Jewish political victory over an occupational force upon them. So when Jesus comes into town, using all this Old Testament imagery to say, I am a different kind of leader, and they begin to pull out palm branches, they are saying, we know what you're about. We know what you're here for. We want you to drive out the Romans. We want you to conquer the Romans. We want the hammer. Which means holding up a palm branch in that time, in that day, was the equivalent of holding up a pitchfork. Take out the Romans. And when Jesus doesn't become the political leader they wanted him to be, that same pitchfork that was cheering for him is the same pitchfork they drive into him and say, crucify him, we'll find a better hammer. And a conviction for me is that I am that crowd. I love God as long as He promotes my agenda. But how quickly I get angry and turn on Him when He doesn't support my agenda. How about you? Do you love God when He brings the circumstances you want, develops the relationships you want, Gives you the opportunities you want. Do you love God? Hosanna. Blessed are you. And then the minute he does something different, he calls you to forgive instead of bring vengeance. He calls you to say don't complain rather than to reinforce your self-pity. He calls you to generosity. He calls you to humility rather than pride. When God calls you to do something uncomfortable, do you get angry at him? Do you get mad at him? You see, the good figs are not producing good fruit. And I want to build the case that in the text they tell us that what was happening in this Hosanna was not what God wanted. It's not what he hoped for. And they were not submitting to his plan. Which is why Mark purposely puts right next to this story the next one. 
Now the next day, when they had come out of the house of good figs, Jesus was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, oh, it looks good. Oh, it's a, oh look at that fig tree. It's beautiful. Green leaves, that's, oh, I'm getting hungry just thinking about it. I'm going to come over here to the fig tree. It looks good on the outside. I can't wait to taste of what's on it. So Jesus came to the fig tree, representing Israel, representing the good figs. And he was hoping he would find something on it, something good to eat, love, joy, peace, self-control, the fruit of God's Spirit. When he came to it, he didn't find something. He found nothing but leaves. External, ritualistic, religious, religiosity, but no real fruit. For it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And the disciples heard it. Now, why does Mark put the story here? Except to show that just as Israel, saying Hosanna, Hosanna, looked good, but it was not producing the right fruit, so too the actual fig tree was looking good, but not producing the right fruit. Now, keep in mind that here's the parallel now between Jeremiah and Jesus. And Jeremiah says, the religiosity of our people has gotten to a place that God's nauseated by it, by all of our externals and not internals. And he's going to let Nebuchadnezzar come and destroy the temple. But he's going to keep a remnant. Jesus is saying the same thing. Remember the two figs? The Romans are going to come and they're going to crush us and they're going to destroy our temple because God is so nauseated by the external religion that we have that does not produce the fruit of God. And the temple will be destroyed, but God will hold a remnant and he will bring them back to the land. So, no, God's still with you, but we're going to go through some very hard times. And then, it's like Jesus whispering, I am not the ruler you expect. I'm not the Messiah you expected. I don't have the agenda you thought. And then Mark launches into what's called a sandwich structure. So it's almost like having an Oreo cookie in the middle of your, your passage of Mark. I'll show you what it looks like here visually. Jesus brings judgment on the fig tree in Mark 11, 12 to 14. Then he finishes the judgment on the fig tree back in verses 20 to 26. But right in the middle, he puts in some Oreo filling, just again to let you know that this parable is about his judgment against the religious system. The religious system that was not producing the fruit of God, it was producing self-righteousness. Because right in the middle of the cursing of the fig tree, he runs over to the temple, the way Mark writes it, and he cleanses the temple of its greed, of its injustice, and specifically of the way in which they're treating the unconvinced, the Gentiles at the time. Now for us, we call this Good Friday. But that's sort of a Christian name for this. That's not what the Jews would have called it at all. In fact, what's amazing is if Jesus hasn't given you enough hints as to what he's trying to do and what he's really about, Jesus is coming in on the donkey at Jewish Passover on Lamb Selection Day. Meaning this is the day that you would go and you'd look amongst your lambs and find the perfect lamb that you were going to present before God based on what Moses said to be your perfect lamb, to be your substitute, and its blood would be taking the curse for you, the reproach for you. So Jesus hops onto this donkey and he rides in with symbol after symbol after symbol, rides right between the good and the bad figs on the Mount of Olives, on a lamb and says, it's lamb selection day. In fact, in another passage, 
it seems clear that Jesus didn't even walk through the main gate. He instead rode his donkey through the sheep gate where the sheep entered into the city to be sacrificed. I think Jesus says to you and I, it's lamb selection day. You want me to make you, you want to make me in your image rather than submit to the fact that I made you in mine. You want your plan. I'm offering you my plan. You want your agenda that I will bless. I'm telling you to trust my agenda. But it's Lamb Selection Day. Will you choose my way? Will you choose me as your sacrifice? Will you take the olive branch I'm extending to you from the Mount of Olives? Or will you do it the world's way? Will you demand your own way? Will you take? Will you use pride and the weaponry of the world? Which lamb will we follow? Which agenda will we follow? Do I want more of me or do I want more of him? Do I want more demanding or do I want more forgiveness? Do I want more serving or do I want more lording over other people? Jesus wants to build us a new heart out of figs. So the question is, which fig am I? In one sense, I'm both. But often as a Christian, I more relate to the good figs and the bad. I'm more tempted, not for rebellion, but I'm more tempted towards self-righteousness. To put on all the externals, to look good on the outside, to justify myself and get mad at God because I'm the older brother who did my part and God, you owe me. So I think the response to this passage is to ask yourself about the figs. I think, I think there's three figs to figure out. Three questions to ask. First question. Figure out which fig is in your heart. Some of us look really good. That's a fig tree from a distance. Looks good. Looks real good. And we look good from a distance. We look good on Sundays. But when people get up close to you, do they see any fruit? In other words, when we get up close to you and we see how you interact when you get angry, when you don't get your way, when things aren't going the way you hoped, do we see love and joy and peace? When we see how you interact with your spouse, your coworkers, your kids, what kind of fruit's coming out of you these days? See, we need to figure out what kind of fig is in our heart, and it may be time to confess to God. You can also find out what kind of fig is in your heart, because how do you feel about the bad figs? If there's a sense of self-righteousness, thank goodness I'm not like the bad figs. I don't struggle with those kind of things. I don't do those bad things. Those people are ruining the world. Instead of saying, well, I am one of those bad figs. And but by the grace of God, I would take the curse and the reproach that God would rightly give to me. Which fig is in your heart? Second question to figure out. Figure out which branch you're waving. How many times do we look like we're accepting God's plan? Hosanna, God! I got it! I'm with you! I'm for you! And the minute He doesn't do what we want, we just turn that into a pitchfork and say, I can't believe you won't do it! This is a good thing, God! You see, the reason self-righteous people are some of the most angry people at God is because they're always coming to God and saying, Look what a good person I am! I've done my part, you're not doing yours! Boy, I've been that. I've been that a lot. 
See, a person who understands the gospel doesn't come waving a palm branch. He comes waving an olive branch. And he says, God, thank you. Thank you that you gave me peace with my heavenly Father. I don't understand what you're doing. It doesn't make much sense to give rather than to take. It doesn't make much sense to forgive rather than to be bitter. It doesn't make much sense to serve rather than demand. But you extended this olive branch to me, and I'm going to trust that your agenda is better. You know what I don't understand? I'm going to trust that your plan is better. Even though it looks differently than I thought, God, I'm going to just extend the olive branch and say, I trust you to be my heavenly Father. Third question. Which fig is in my heart? Which branch am I waving? And figure out if I'm keeping out the unconvinced. You see, in the sandwich structure, Jesus went over and he was really critiquing the religiosity and how they treated those who are the bad figs. So he goes over to the temple. And he goes to the temple. There was a section called the Court of the Gentiles. Gentiles were exploring. They were checking out faith. They did not grow up with the Bible. They did not grow up with faith. And so they were coming to the temple during Passover to experience forgiveness for the first time. Many of them had traveled large distances. But on the way, there was a corrupt system put in place by the Sadducees and King Herod. They put a monopoly on the sheep. Only the sheep that they raised and they sold would qualify. And they got the priests involved in it. So if you were a Gentile specifically, you'd come in with your sheep, the very best you had, because you wanted to find peace with this God you've been exploring. You'd bring your sheep in, and they would immediately check it out and say, not good enough, doesn't qualify. But tell you what, you traveled so far, we'll pay you pennies on the dollar for it. You know, just so you have something. They'd give you a dollar for your $100 sheep. And they'd say, well, you need one for sacrifice if you're going to experience God, so we'll sell you one of ours at ten times the normal price. So immediately these Gentiles who were trying to seek and discover God were immediately put off by this. In fact, archaeologists have found that the, the, the weight system that the Sadducees used purposely, they cheated the weights to take more of their gold in order to weigh out to get their sheep. And the reason Jesus shows up and he's so angry is not because he's anti-business. He's not at all. He's very pro-business. He's very pro-free market. But he's very anti-corruption. And specifically the kind of corruption that was putting a bad taste in the mouths of these Gentiles who were coming to seek God. And the religious system that was supposed to draw people in through the court of the Gentiles was instead pushing them away. How do you feel toward the unconvinced in your life? I'm going to invite the band to come up. Because what happens is that this temple will be destroyed by the Romans. And the people who have the same question that Jeremiah's people had. God, what happened? How could you have destroyed this? This looks so beautiful. This is such a wonderful external religious system. And God allows all of it to be destroyed so that he could give the people a new heart. So they could return to him one day with a whole heart for him. It was during that mean time of 70 years awaiting the promise of God returning them to the land and giving them a new heart that the prophet Ezekiel showed up. He says, guys, you may feel like we're abandoned and forgotten, but God wants to only give you a new heart. He wants to give you breath. He wants to give you a new body. He takes Ezekiel. God takes Ezekiel out to this valley of dry bones. Right during that time that they were still in bondage, waiting for God to return them. And he says, if you will ask God to breathe life into your heart, it will deliver you from self-indulgence and from self-righteousness, from rebellion and from religion. 
In the words of Ezekiel, Lord, Son of Man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Breathe your life into it. The band does his next song. Maybe you want to ask God to give you a new heart. To breathe life into you. That you would trust his agenda. And stop demanding that he support your own. Let's listen together. Father, we come before you this morning. And we want that to be true. We want you to be the one that really matters. I just confess far too often as I've replaced you with some idol in my life. Usually a good thing. It's my marriage. It's being a dad. It's my status. It's my reputation. It's how well I perform. Something matters to me more than you. Father, we know that doesn't produce your fruit. So we confess our idolatry. Father, we ask that you will uh, give us a new heart. A heart filled with your spirit. That the real triumphal entry will happen as we leave here today. As people see your spirit in us. Riding lowly on a donkey. Humbly serving those around us. God, we ask as we go out today that people will see your spirit in us. And you will draw people. Bad figs and good figs will be drawn to the gospel. The good news that you have come for us. For you are the God that really matters. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thanks for being here today as we begin our Reframe series. If you came prepared to give, some offering boxes on the way out. If you knew the church, we'd love to put a name with a face. Third door on your left is the hearth room. We'd love to say hi. If not, we'll see you next week for Mark chapter 12. Thanks again.